I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending October 15th. We have a sponsor for this episode. We'd like to thank Renesas, a global leader in embedded semiconductor solutions. The electronics industry has been one of the few consistent economic engines in the last year. But there are persistent questions about supplies, manufacturing capacity, customer demand, and more. This week, we'll be talking with Salash Chittapetti, who, as Executive Vice President of global semiconductor company Renesas, is in a good position to provide a global overview of where the industry and the economy it serves are heading. There's another big prevailing trend in the electronics industry. It's global warming. The electronics industry has always been keenly aware of power consumption issues with regards to the products it creates, but now those issues are societal. Part of our conversation with Silesh looks at the industry's comprehensive approach to sustainability in engineering. Also in this episode, we'll have a rare interview with Massimo Banzi, the co-founder of Arduino. EE Times editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio was at the recent Maker Fair in Rome, where he spoke to Banzi about Arduino and about the Maker phenomenon. Before we get to our interviews, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories you can find in EE Times this week. We've got an overview of a new artificial intelligence chip, this one from Rain Neuromorphic. Rain has taken the uncommon approach of building its chip with completely analog architecture. Why is that a big deal? Well, for starters, power is always a profound concern in AI processing. And using an analog architecture has the potential to slash power consumption significantly. Autonomous passenger vehicles are unlikely anytime soon, but China is extremely keen to be the world leader in autonomous driving. It is already beginning to put robo-taxis and other public transport vehicles on the road, almost all of them with human drivers who can take the wheel when necessary. We've got an overview of that activity in China. One of our other podcasts is called Embedded Edge, and we have a new episode with editor Nitin Dahad's conversation with Graham Curran, the CEO of Sandril, a company that designs complex systems on chips, or SOCs, for its customers. If you're already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left, you'll see links to all of these stories. Or you can also go straight to eetimes.com, where you can find these stories along with all our other coverage. That includes industry news from our sister publications. Scroll down to the bottom of our homepage to find articles from EDN, Power Electronics News, Electronic Products, EPS News, EE Times Europe, Embedded.com, EE Web, and Analog Planet. The world is still reeling from two big body blows, a trade war and a pandemic. Both are lingering, and together they have put enormous pressures on the world economy. All along, one of the most reliable engines of economic activity has been the electronics industry. That said, the electronics industry is hardly hitting on all cylinders. There are still spot shortages of product. There is still more demand for many customers than there is supply. The automotive industry, for example, is scrambling for ICs even as the amount of electronics in every car expands by leaps and bounds. 
Just days ago, there were reports that Apple is facing chip shortages that will compel it to cut iPhone 13 production from 90 million units to 80 million. Now, that was unconfirmed by Apple at the time we recorded this, but investors still dinged the stocks of several Apple chip suppliers. That was certainly real enough. There were many factors that combined to create the chip shortage. They mostly revolved around supply chain disruptions and insufficient fab capacity to meet demand, but the problems have lingered so long they are now compounding. Fabs are raising prices, and the IC industry is experiencing its own shortages of supplies of chemicals and other materials. Everybody is looking for signs and portents that might indicate what the future might hold. Now, there are a handful of chip companies that are truly global, not just with sales operations everywhere, but with design centers and manufacturing facilities distributed around the world. Renesas is one of them. Renesas has some notable forebears. It was formed from some of the semiconductor operations of Hitachi, Mitsubishi, and NEC. Three years ago, the company bought Integrated Device Technologies, IDT, And earlier this year, it bought Dialog Semiconductor. Those two acquisitions helped give the company the global reach it now has. Salesh Chittapetti is an executive vice president at Renaissance and general manager of the company's IoT and infrastructure business unit. We recorded this interview late last week. I started by asking Salesh for a sort of State of the Union overview of the industry. Here's what he had to say. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you, Brian. Uh, Let me begin with a little context as to where the industry is overall. We see shortages today, both in the front end and the back end. Capacity is extremely tight, and we expect capacity constraints to continue into 2022. There are certain companies and analysts who expect shortages to extend uh, well into 23, but given the visibility we have today, it's probably a good estimation for the front end that the capacity will continue to be tight well into 22. Now, the back end, of course, is its own sets of challenges, including raw materials, substrates, lead frames, and that's going to take some time to address as well. So my overall expectation is the restoration of balance between supply and demand, barring macroeconomic shocks, will occur later in 22 or early in 23. And that's speaking for the industry as a whole. Moving to the Renaissance side, the context that I'd like to provide is that we have our internal factories, certainly, where we manufacture the bulk of our current microcontrollers, microprocessors, and SOCs. And while I will not specifically talk about the automotive or the non-automotive side, what I will tell you is that we're investing a tremendous amount of money in capacity expansion. As a matter of fact, uh, we've doubled our capacity expansion plans for 2022 versus 2021. We're expanding capacity in the microcontroller area and the microprocessor area to serve our customers the best we can. So that's the MCU and the MPU side of the business. However, we have a significant exposure to the foundries with the analog and power business. That business is growing uh, with a small sliver manufactured in-house, but most of that is managed uh, outside in the foundries. And there the capacity, as you know, is primarily uh, that is constrained is primarily in the 130 and 180 nanometer nodes. Uh, which continue to be tight on a global basis. As a matter of fact, anything that is greater than 14 or 16 nanometer technology continues to be extremely tight at the foundries. 
Uh, we don't expect the foundries to be adding a ton of capacity at those nodes. Most of the investment of the foundries is at the leading edge of the technology curve. So this demand and supply situation will take a little bit of time to get into balance in the analog and the power side of the business. While there are certain foundries that are investing in the older nodes, it will probably take some time to come online, and I think it will most likely be in the third quarter of 2022 when that sort of gets into a better balance. So that's kind of the landscape uh, for the industry uh, broadly, uh, as well as for Renaissance. Uh, so we are aware that um, uh, the, the pure play foundries are trying to expand uh, expand their operations with new fabs. A lot of the companies with internal fab capacity capabilities are also uh, looking to expand, uh, fill out factories, build new ones. Um but that takes some time. So when we're right. looking ahead towards the first half of 2022, or as some people might even think 2023, um, what's the uh, what's the status of fab capacity? Um, a first, do does it seem like enough is likely to come online? And then there's the other concern that there might there might be an overcompensation. You might end up with a factory glut. Um, what do you feel about that situation? So pri primarily, uh, most of the, speaking to the foundries, right, the majority of the capacity that's coming online is coming up at the leading edge nodes, at least at the major foundries, right? Uh, and basically, the capacity that's being added in the other in the lagging edge nodes, which is primarily where uh, analog and power technologies run, is somewhat limited. <clears throat> so I don't expect, uh, while I do expect there will be a restoration between demand and supply uh, in the time frame that I outlined before, uh, I don't think for those particular nodes you're going to suffer from a glut in capacity uh, uh -huh. in any meaningful fashion. It is more likely to occur at the more advanced nodes where there's significant amount of capacity coming online. Uh, and even there, one of the things that several of uh, the foundry people are doing that's a little bit different uh, than the model that was used before was mm -hmm. they're partnering with the customers for investments just to make sure that they're not building excess capacity. So this time around is quite different, Brian, than the traditional model where the, where the foundry went off by itself uh, and added capacity, right? So there is much more partnership between the foundries and their customers, especially as they're bringing more capacity online. So I certainly expect there's going to be a, a vested interest in parts of the customers to make sure that the foundries are running relatively close uh, to what they see their end demand being. Oh, that's fascinating. Now, we've actually run a bunch of articles about um, um, uh, and customers, um, semiconductor companies uh, looking for uh, particularly uh, gallium nitride and silicon carbide um, wafer runs, uh, wafer capacity. Um, and, and that's happening actually quite across the, uh, across the, uh, the industry then, huh? Mm -hmm. Yes, it okay. is. It's it's the more. It's not only in very special. Of course, in the obviously in the very specialized notes, certainly there'll be even more of a vested interest yeah. uh, mechanism. Uh, but uh, it's also happening at the more uh, 
more advanced nodes in general as well. So, and, and uh, just to make it clear, um, you use the phrase lagging nodes. I think a lot of people use that phrase. Um, it, it makes it sound like it's old technology and, and perhaps it's technology that's been around for a while, but it is perfectly adequate. For, for the application, for the for the applications, right? Absolutely. Did that remains true? That remains to be very true, right? Okay. So the nodes that, in general, power uh, and some of the analog uh, technologies run, which is typically greater than forty nine nanometers and uh, up to say one eighty nanometers, is a sweet spot. You'll generally find uh, that those technologies uh, are the ones with capacity being fairly constrained. Uh, and also the ones that are very adequate for addressing that application domain in particular. Yeah. Um, typically in times of uh, when, when supply chains get disrupted and, and supplies, uh, you know, spot supplies, uh, supplies can be uh, uh, difficult to, to obtain uh, from time to time. Um what that does is have that typically has an effect on prices. Uh, I mean, if you look at the economy in general, I think we're seeing a lot of people predicting, um, you know, inflationary pricing on everything from food to electronic goods. Um, does that? How is that? Um, how is that that uh, uh, affect working on? the semiconductor industry itself in terms of uh, fab capacity, in terms of getting a hold of photochemicals and, and other stuff on the back end. So, uh, I mean, I think you've read the articles, I'm sure, uh, you know, the, there is a general trend towards increasing prices of raw materials uh, and supplies across the board. Uh, and certainly um, that's, uh, Certainly, that's reflective in what we see as well, right, mm -hmm. uh, as purchasers of the material. Uh, and in general, uh, you know, uh, the Renesas in particular has been very proactive uh, in not going out there and saying we're going to do this or we're going to do that uh, by way of X percentages or Y percentages, right? We've been very collaborative with our customers in general to provide them more transparency. In a situation like this, generally find transparency is the best policy uh, and working proactively with the customer. And one of the things, positives, that's if I digress for a second, mm -hmm. uh, that, that has come uh, in this area as a result of the, all these supply chain constraints is the notion of transparency across the supply chain has increased greatly, right? And then I view that as being a net positive. Uh, so for us, uh, what the tact we've chosen is to be completely transparent with the customers in terms of what we're seeing, and then we're proactively with them to see what makes sense uh, in terms of uh, how we work together uh, on a, on on in this kind of environment, if you will, right? That's the approach we've taken. Some others have obviously taken a more significant approach, where they've gone out and said, "We're going to do this, or we're going to do that," uh, and you know, take it or leave it. And we don't do those kinds of approaches in general. Mm. Uh, but the fact is still absolutely true that the price of raw materials has gone up, the price of substrates has gone up, uh, lead there's lead frame pricing increases. Uh, anything that you can think of in general pertinent to the semiconductor industry, raw materials has gone up in terms of pricing. So it's no secret. Uh, it's well publicized out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think uh, the automotive industry gets a lot of press uh, for uh, per- perhaps um, a, a a phenomenon of partially of their own making. Um, when uh, when the pandemic first hit, when the trade war was first raging, uh, they kind of uh, the 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 reports were that they had scaled back their estimates of uh, of what kind of their production requirements and, and then it turned out that uh, that they sh- probably shouldn't have uh, demand remained there and, uh, and and they've been scrambling since and it even because that 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 story even becomes part of um, the uh, rationale for the chips act in the United States um, other legislative uh, and regulatory uh, maneuvering and uh, uh, the European Union, for example. Um, can I ask you to, to speak specifically about that vertical? Uh, I'm, I'm not the best person in the world to talk about the vertical, but let me right. kind of tell you, uh, tell, let me provide a little bit of context, right? In general, the automotive industry was used to more of a just-in-time manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. And that essentially forced people to maintain very low inventory levels. That coupled with the fact uh, that the COVID-19 shock essentially led people to drastically cut their forecast, right? Which in the end was not really what the end market was demanding, created a very big bubble, right? Obviously. Mm. And that's the bubble that everybody is trying to recover from. And as you know, it takes a lot of time to add front-end capacity, right? Oh, yeah. And I think, uh, and I think, you know, that'll run its course. And uh, I think there's a large foundry out there that's kind of said they expect this, the front end part of it, at least, to end by later this year, or the first first half, first quarter of next year, right? That's what they've kind of come out and said. But when you move past that, right? Okay, but now that you've got the wafers, there's still stuff that you have to contend with on the back end, right? And mm-hmm. we're still dealing with COVID-related outbreaks in different countries where there's back-end facilities located. So it'll take a while to work through the chain. And the other thing that'll also have to play itself out is do you have the right mixture of parts of the different suppliers uh, in order to build, construct uh, the uh, the system that you're actually looking to build, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not like if one supplier solves the problem, the, the global problem of shortages is over, right? These mm-hmm. parts come from a variety of different suppliers, right? It's not just one supplier that's providing it. So there will be inventory mismatches that have to be dealt with the end, end customer as well. And that until the supply of parts from the different suppliers is optimized so that the right number of systems and vehicles are produced, it's going to take a little bit of time, right? And that's the reality of it. And it's going to take some time uh, for that kind of situation to get back uh, into balance. Recognize, of course, companies like Renaissance are adding a tremendous amount of capacity like I started out with, right? Mm-hmm. But that certainly will address uh, some measure of the problem. But it's not like we supply every component of every part of every vehicle, right? We don't. Obviously, right, right, there's right. other suppliers that come in into the picture uh, and provide it. So the mix and match that has to happen in order to produce uh, some kind of subsystem in a vehicle, whether it's an ADAS system or whether it's something else, right? takes a little bit of time uh, and all the components need to be 
procured from the different vendors in order to build your particular system. Uh, and and obviously, uh, you know, the, the, those inventory levels at the system level need to come back into balance. But the good thing that will happen out of this, Brian, I mean, and we can look at it from a negative angle, but I look at it more positively mm-hmm. in the sense that there's a much higher level of collaboration between the end customer and the semiconductor supplier, which was never truly the case before, right? In between, you had players, uh, and I don't want to name them, but certainly you had players uh, in between uh, the semiconductor supplier and the automotive manufacturer, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. typically. And those are the ones that controlled what happened. So now we have a much higher level of transparency between the end customer and ourselves. And I think transparency is always very good, right? Uh, At the end of the day, you're not ending up building excess capacity. People are realizing, hey, it makes sense to have a healthy level of inventory and not just always resort to just in time, right? And that solves a lot of problems over time. Now, I'm not saying it'll be solved within the next uh, six to 12, six months or nine months. It might take about a year, year and a half, right, to, right. to kind of get all of that into balance. But it's a good thing in general because people have, this has forced people to re-examine their supply chains and, and kind of come into a situation where uh, getting, uh, getting a much clearer understanding of the challenges each of us is encountering in our respective domains, right? Yeah. Uh, so that there's no excessive demand and the old school of just beating up the supplier for getting more material is changing. Very good. It seems there are a lot of changes going on all at once uh, yeah. that uh, that the industry is having to deal with. So there are the business practices, um, right. the just-in-time and, and balancing inventory, uh, relationships with suppliers. Um, at the same time, um, there is a there. There has been all along a growing interest in um, uh, uh, energy saving energy. Whether it's an issue of just operational efficiency, or whether that's coupled with um, a genuine interest in mitigating climate change, um, but um, not only are semiconductor companies being asked to um, solve energy consumption concerns on behalf of their clients, um, the industry itself is looking to solve its own energy consumption uh, concerns. Um, and this is occurring at the same time as you're dealing with a lot of other business upheaval. Um Talk to me about the phenomenon of of updating your own operations as a semiconductor business um, while you're also updating, dealing with, let's just use a shorthand of, the supply chain issue. Right. So it's, it's, it's a good question, right? I mean, look. Uh, we, we the good thing about the semiconductor industry is we've always learned to juggle multiple balls at the same time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so this this is just one more addition uh, to what we need to do. But sustainability uh, is is a, a key part of our business moving forward, right? And it's always been, except that it's never come to the fore as much as it has done recently, uh, in light especially of global warming trends that we're seeing, right? Uh, and and the notion that we need to get out of the fossil 
fuel and minimize our energy consumption. So there's multiple domains to it, right? First is uh, when you're running a factory, certainly to minimize the amount of, of uh uh, you know, power consumption that you can use as much of recycled water as you can. There's a much more sensitivity to those kinds of things than there ever was, say, a decade ago, right? Although some of the earlier pioneers started working on it around that time, right? Uh, including mm-hmm. ourselves. But it has now come to the forefront where investors are certainly asking about our sustainability initiatives. And there are funds that are dedicated to to basically mutual funds that are looking mm-hmm. at your ESG uh, scorecards, right? And there are several mm-hmm. agencies that monitor it. So it's come to the forefront now, where as leadership of an organization, you kind of need to have this front and center relative to what you need to do. So the fab side, I kind of said, okay, the recycling of the water, minimizing the energy consumption, being smart uh, about using lighting more efficiently, and so on and so forth. And all these are things that will happen uh, in the fab environment, right? And using chemicals mm-hmm. that are... That are uh, you know, less environmentally harmful than they ever have been in the past. A great focus on that is all those are things that are happening more in the manufacturing side. But now when you move more to, say, the design side of it, right, there is mm-hmm. also a very big push uh, towards uh, essentially designing your circuits with the idea that you need to drive the power-to-performance ratio with each succeeding generation of device that you're putting into the marketplace. So that's a very big item as you move forward, right? Because if you think about it, even in the data center, right, data centers are some of the biggest power hogs in the world, right? Right. Uh, And so simply put, right, uh, and I think my figure is right, but you can certainly check it. I believe, right, one terawatt of savings is the equivalent of like a thousand nuclear reactors or something like that. Uh, And basically, if you drive 1% improvement in efficiency across all data centers in the world, right, you would get something of that scale to be meaningful. So driving that incremental 1% improvement in efficiency is a huge factor. So you're finding that the data center guys are pushing very hard on people that are supplying power to go much more aggressively to higher power efficiencies, smaller form factors, to do things like how do we... uh, A great example of this, right, is in DDR4, you'd have your PIMIC off the DIM module, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right now in the DDR5, the PIMIC goes on the DIM module. That leads to much more efficient use of power and a much better technology. And on the low power side too, right, similarly, you want to be extending the battery life of the devices as much as you can. So A, on the one side, you have the battery charging, which of course you want it to be as fast as you can. And then on the other side of it is certainly managing the battery life far more efficiently, right? Uh, Using the technologies that you have to maximize their life. So that's where things like energy harvesting come into the picture, ultra low power technologies come into the picture. And that's why our, our integration of dialogue with its low power technologies and hybrid topologies is making a lot of sense for us so that we can deploy it a little bit more broadly across uh, some of the other areas that we're looking at.
So there's multiple domains to sustainability angle. And the other angle that I'll also leave uh, a part to talk for you is, hey, as global temperatures warm up, right, which is a, mm. which, which certainly is a trend, uh, and, you know, the pollution levels, people are much more acutely aware of uh, pollution levels and so on. Environmental sensing and air quality sensing becomes much more important. And then on the other side of it, uh, you're really getting much more, uh, into saying, hey, you're going to need more cooling, whether it's in your houses, whether it's in your offices, in a warmed up atmosphere, right? So there it's driving the need for more efficient air conditioning systems, air conditioning systems that are sort of much more directed towards people entering a room as opposed to the wasteful blast that you'd get from before, right? And air conditioning systems. So now, mm -hmm. you know, air conditions are getting air conditioning systems are getting smarter, where it's directed essentially towards where people are sitting, using a variety of different technologies, right? There's not one particular technology that has lead, but there are a variety of ways in which you can do that kind of stuff. And ceiling fans are becoming much more efficient. And, and in general, the move from brush motors to brushless motors is another one that drives uh, energy efficiency. So there's a multiple domains uh, in which sustainability starts to play a role. Uh, but it's uh, it's going to be an area that, you know, one really needs to watch uh, over time because not only uh, is it essential for us uh, as, huma as humanity, but also, you know, our customers are demanding it, right, more than ever, mm -hmm. as our investors. So the broad stakeholder base is kind of demanding sustainability as being one of the major factors for us. Wow, that was uh, that was as, <laughs> as delightfully thorough a response as I could have asked for in advance, um, and I and I didn't ask for it in advance. Um, I just love the fact that 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 um, it, it's a. Uh, the awareness that it, this is a top to bottom concern, everything from the motors in your ceiling fan to ceiling fans to HVAC to uh, the semiconductor fabs to the data centers themselves uh, and, and the effect on the environment. Um, it's uh, it's encouraging to hear that um, you know the awareness and and it's not just renaissance and some of the other companies i've talked to too uh, it, it's encouraging to see that the the awareness of the problem is global in every mm -hmm. sense of the word and uh that it's you know for you know for all you can ask people to vote for the you know a green candidate it's engineers who are going to have to create those solutions it's spot on. You're spot on, Brian. And I mean, I, I think ultimately it's the engineers that are going uh, to make make us go into this brave new world, right, that we all need to enter uh, in order to make uh, our lives uh, more sustainable and more uh, uh, enjoyable, if you will, right, uh, mm -hmm. given all the changes that we're facing. Uh, and, and it's the engineer that's tweaking the algorithm for for making the brushless motor more effective or, uh, you know, the engineer that's designing the low power circuit that's going to make at the end of the day the difference in all our lives. Think about it, right? I mean, you're going from battery lives that used to run, uh, devices that used to run for maybe uh, less than a year, now running for 10 years of the same battery, right? So right. Uh, look, think about the progress that the engineering community has made uh, in that regard. 
is just mind-boggling. Uh, we underestimate the value of the engineer, but I'll tell you, the semiconductor engineer is coming back in style. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, oh my God, I'm, I might have had one or two more questions, but gosh, that is a wonderful place to end this conversation. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you, Brian, for the opportunity. Silas, thank you very much. That was Silas Chittipetti, Executive Vice President of Renaissance. By the middle of the 20th century, the automotive industry had firmly established itself. Furthermore, by then, the industry had been around long enough that the technology had become accessible to the general public. The 1950s and 60s saw the height of car culture, with hot rodders and racers modifying their vehicles for looks and performance. My dad built his own motorcycle in 66 or 67. I never got that bug. I was a bookworm. But even at the time, as young as I was, I fully understood that building a bike from scratch was remarkable. Car culture is pretty much done and gone, but something similar has been happening in another industry lately. Computers have been around long enough now that the technology has become accessible to the general public. Between open source hardware and software and the growing proliferation of developer kits, some pretty sophisticated Computer technology is readily accessible to anyone interested, and there are a lot of people interested. A do-it-yourself electronics culture has taken hold, and it's spreading. These DIYers call themselves makers. Maurizio De Paolo Emilio is managing editor of Power Electronics News and a contributing editor to EE Times, and he's been fascinated by the maker community for a long time. There was a live, in-person maker fair in Rome recently. And there he met one of the patron saints of maker culture, Massimo Banzi. Banzi is the co-founder of Arduino, one of the most popular open system development platforms in the world today. Here's Maurizio with Massimo Banzi, recorded last week in Rome. Hello, everyone. I am here with Massimo Banzi, co-founder of Arduino and one of the main promoters of makers. Ciao, Massimo. How are you? Thanks a lot for coming on. Ciao, thank you for having me. So, this week is the, the week of Make a Fair, Make a Fair Rome, the European edition, the biggest European uh, event dedicated to innovation. So, we can say that uh, it's back in face-to-face. So, from uh, agri-tech to food tech, from uh, digital manufacturing uh, to robotics, a lot of topics, a lot of innovations. How would you define innovation? <laughs> Yeah, that's a very, very complicated, uh, very complicated uh, question. But I'll try to do my best. So, to me, innovation is a way is is an advancement uh, in uh, science and technology that uh, that provides a positive benefit to the to the world to humanity. Mm-hmm. So I try to always frame innovation into in a way that. Uh, somehow has a positive impact on people, no? because, you know, even uh, weapons are an innovation, but they don't uh, often have a in- positive impact on people. No? So really trying to advance the science and technology with the benefit of humanity. So many years since the first Make Affair, what has changed? What are your thoughts? In particular, what we will see in this new edition? 
Yeah, I mean the the metaphoric realm it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting uh, configuration that you don't find uh, in other parts of the world because it is organized by the Chamber of Commerce, so it is organized by a public entity which is tasked to promote small uh, to promote companies and to promote commerce and business. So it's quite interesting because they created a platform where for the past. Uh, Eight years. I mean, they, we, the, the, the Maker Fair in Rome started in 2013. Eh? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the first edition was, uh, you know, we we thought that uh, the, um, uh, that no, nobody was going to come <laughs> because also it was it was raining and it was so we thought nobody was going to come. And effectively, mm -hmm. 35,000 people queued under the rain to come and see. Uh, what people were building. I would mm -hmm. say back in those days, the makers were more, uh, there were a lot more sort of um, regular people trying to build uh, all sorts of contraption and a number of companies that wanted to support the event. And I would mm -hmm. say over the year, we saw a constant change and evolution from uh, all this kind of, you know, run. Um, random collection of people doing yep. uh, interesting things in technology to more and more people turning into companies. And then uh, Rome started to attract a lot of, for example, university research. You know, so if you look at uh, what's uh, happening this year at Make a Fair Rome, you have a ton of uh, research, uh, researchers and university presenting all sorts of AI and robotics. Mm -hmm. So so at the beginning, people thought that, uh, you know, makers were basically only making 3D printers uh, <laughs> while they were doing all sorts of other uh, interesting things. And mm -hmm. now there are a lot of more people that look at this thing as a way to build uh, a serious research. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to make, <laughs> make it too long. But the, the idea yeah. is that... Uh, there's a lot of activities in Italy around startups, and I feel that the Maker Faire collects those people who are actually trying to do something which is really innovative in a way, where there's like sometimes serious research behind right now. Okay. So in terms of uh, Arduino, what are the news? So Arduino Pro is, uh, is tracking the road for demanding industrial control, AI edge processing, so in particular with the latest uh, products such as Portenta and, uh, and Nikla. What are your plans for the next months? Well, so one of the, one of the strategies right now is exactly this, you know, to, to, work on, um, to, to work on more and more of these uh, pro products and to, we are uh, supporting more and more, of, for example, the people doing uh, tiny machine learning. So we have uh, I will give a talk at this ARM event uh, that's coming like next week, uh, where I show that we, you can use Portenta as like a AI camera that can read the data from physical indicators on pieces of equipment or pick up vibrations from other mm -hmm. type of equipment. So uh, finally, the hardware is coming out. We've been working on the hardware for a long time, and some of the partnership that we built uh, for the machine learning, it's it's starting to kind of match with the hardware that we release, uh, and the cloud that we built is coming along. So uh, we've, I feel that now we have all the ingredients that we can then start to show all the amazing applications that you can do and how you can take your 
you know, use the understanding of the Arduino technology into a, into an industrial setting or a, even a you know agricultural setting. So mm-hmm. I think it's the next months are interesting because all these different vectors are finally coming together and um, and finally we can actually show exactly what you can build with this kind of technologies. So um, we have a lot of, of innovation, so technology, uh, as uh, as you said, from uh, artificial intelligence to mobility. So that means also in the next future we will have the request for new professional profiles, data science, just also now, AI experts, etc. So what is uh, what is the goal of uh, universities and uh, and school? What uh, uh, the object? What should they offer? And what can Arduino offer? Well, so I think, in a way, at the moment, uh, a lot of universities have responded to to to, to this drive to to, mm-hmm. to to push artificial intelligence forward. So you see a lot of uh, universities that are doing a really good job. Uh, I teach in Lugano, in Switzerland, where actually the university has been working on AI for 25 years for some. So in a way, you you can see that there's a lot of. Uh, a lot of interesting work being done uh, in places like this. What I think it's in Arduino can contribute uh, is to basically be Arduino, so to take something complicated and making it more accessible. Because, again, I gave a talk a few days ago about exactly this problem. Now, there are a lot of people who are trying to approach AI. They find that even the tutorials that are called an easy way to learn about AI, they start with an insanely large mathematical formula and obviously this cuts out a lot of people but then when you start to talk about this in terms of algorithms in terms of uh, if you describe the same thing in a different way then you can let a lot more people become users and creators of these uh, of these tools and I think that's one of the objectives that Arduino always had too. we took microcontrollers and make them more understandable to people we took yeah. IoT and we you know so I think AI is one of the other tasks that we have on our radar to to really take it and make it something that can be used by a very wide audience. Yeah, yeah. I I think that uh, so in this moment uh, uh, also the most important topic will be digital transformation that can bring uh, uh, with uh, uh, with it uh, in terms of artificial intelligence, but also energy that we have uh, a particular period period now. So. Massimo, thank you a lot. We are in conclusion. Just uh, last comment. What do you want to say to the young people, young makers, who will, who will have to take uh, over the, the reins of this uh, planet? So what's your advice for the next generation? Yeah, I think one of the very interesting things is that uh, you can see the younger generation are much more uh, sensitive and they have a much under, better understanding of the situation that our planet is in. So you can see that they are much more committed. We saw it a few days ago no, in, uh, in Milan. They want, they really care about what happens to this planet because they're going to inherit it. And so I, I feel that uh, they, we will see some amazing innovation coming out from, um, from them. So to young people, I would say don't let other older people tell you what you cannot or you can do because 
you know, uh, technology is open. You can use it. You can invent things. And then, you know, you can, you can use that power of invention and creativity that you have because you're younger to overcome the, 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 the you know, the, the, the resistance, you know, the friction that uh, some older people uh, bring to change because either we change now or it's going to be very, very difficult to live on this place very soon. Thank you so much. Grazie Massimo. Uh, thanks a lot for this opportunity and uh, enjoy the Make a Fair. Uh, thank you and uh, you know, thank you for inviting me and to give me the chance to, to talk to your audience. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'm heading to the Make a Fair now. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you. Ciao Massimo. That was EE Times editor Maurizio De Paolo Emilio with Massimo Banzi, co-founder of Arduino. And that wraps up another episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. If you go to our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find our archive of weekly briefing podcasts. Each episode has a transcript along with links to most of the stories and subjects we mentioned. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. Once again, we'd like to thank Renaissance for sponsoring this episode of The Weekly Briefing. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.